Well, I'm excited to continue um, our exploration of the book of Revelation. I thank you, Dr. Horton, for doing the past two Sundays. And then next Sunday, I don't know who will be doing it. And then Dr. Horton will be doing the Sunday after that. I'm preaching at two different churches the next two Sundays. And then, we'll, uh, and then I'll be back. So I thank you for your patience and juggling multiple pastors. But I'm really enjoying going through it with Dr. Horton. I was blown away by his class last week as I was driving home. I was just like, that's so good. It was so interesting and informative and helpful. I'm sure that you were uh, as blessed as I, as I am. It was wonderful to be able to have him as a seminary professor and now as associate pastor. And the privilege to be able to co-teach a class with him was just an honor for me. But uh, it was great. Thank you, brother, for doing that. So I want to continue um, with Revelation. I have um, a four-page handout, because there were two, hand, two outlines that I gave us the very first day of class, but we didn't have the opportunity to go through them. So I want to back up uh, just a little bit. And so just by way of reminder, the very first class we have of like, why revelation? And sometimes, you know, people look at it and they get confused, they get afraid, they get scared. Uh, it causes frustration, it causes division. And we said, really, the reason for the book of Revelation is to bless and to comfort and to assure and to bolster and to strengthen Christians during the time of the tribulation. And John said that we're partners in the tribulation, so we're not waiting for some future period when these things are going to happen. We're, they're happening right now. And what the, the book of Revelation has to make sense to a first century church which is one of the things I think Dr. Horton did so well last week to say, these images and everything that it's talking about make sense to first century Christians. You don't have to wait for a 21st century fulfillment. It's now, uh, in the time between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming, there's gonna be persecution, there's gonna be trials, there's gonna be tribulations, there's gonna be a war against the church, against the gospel. But ultimately we know the end and we know who's ruling and who's reigning and who's in authority and that's where we said that the central image of all of Revelation is Christ. The triumph of the Lamb. It may be something about him in terms of his kingdom or his enemies or his people or his presence or his mercy or his plans or his blessings or his wrath or even his father. But the central image of Revelation is Christ. And if we don't come away with that, as the overarching theme, as the overarching image, then we've missed it. Everything that it's trying to tell us and everything that it's trying to show us. And we even talked about the reality that sometimes when people say they have glimpses of heaven nowadays or they have visions of heaven and they see really warm and wonderful and fuzzy things, you know, they see basically quiet, <laughs> which is great. But when you get a glimpse behind the curtain, like John does, into heaven, you're just blown away by the image and the reality of Jesus Christ. If the image of heaven doesn't have Christ as its central figure, then it's not an image of heaven. It's an image of something else, maybe nice and beautiful or what have you, but not glory and not heaven. Everything is worthy as the lamb to receive praise and honor and glory. And the stage was being set at the very beginning in John's introduction that the things that he, sa that he says do cause people confusion or fear or doubt or frustration or what have you. But Jesus is saying to John in particular, he says, fear not. 
For I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. So he's trying to draw John's attention. Hey, the things that you see, some of it's crazy and wild to think about, and some of these images that you're going to see, and some of the things that we're going to be talking about. But fear not, at the very beginning, because I died, and I live, and I live forevermore, and he's the one who has the keys. And so again, it's directing and reorienting our mind towards Christ, to look up to him in faith and out to others in service and say that despite whatever comes, don't forget this. How much authority does Christ have now, beloved? In heaven and where else? All authority in heaven and on earth. So fear not, little flock. I've got this. Trials may come, tribulations may come, difficulties may come, but I've got this, and I've got you, and I'm coming back for you. And we have that promise to shape and to guide us. So one of the things that I just want to talk about as a principle before we get into Revelation 4 is the chronology question. So sometimes when people grew up in the same kind of church that Mike and I did, they tend to read the book as if everything that happens in the book is supposed to happen in order. And that really messes with your understanding of the book because it's not written that way. And that's not us reading into the text. I want to show you from the text. The text doesn't say that. So one of the big markers, and I didn't get this until I was in seminary. This wasn't explained to me really well. Is that the very beginning, it talks about the Father and it says, who is and who was and who is to come. Right? It's talking about God the Father He is, he was, he's eternal, and he's coming. But there are several points in the book, and I've put them in your outline, where it only says who is and who was. And the phrase who is coming is not there anymore, because what they're talking about in that scene is in our future when he does come when he's already come. So it's talking about the judgment that we're waiting for, it's looking back upon. So for instance, at the end of bowl six and at the end of seal seven, instead of hearing who is and who was and who is coming, which you hear several times throughout the book about our present evil age, you also get a time marker that says who is and who was. Because now it's looking at something that's future to us, but John's seeing it as a past or present reality. And we get this all the time, don't we? In, in literature, we get this all the time in films. Some of your favorite films probably aren't things that always just go sequentially. <laughs> they don't always do that. They do a great job of, you get flashbacks. You see something uh, that happened previously, or you see um, something from a different angle. One time you'll get something from the husband's perspective. One time's from the wife's perspective. Another time's from the child's perspective. All talking about the same thing. And Revelation does that a lot. So for instance, what Dr. Horton looked at the past two weeks is what was happening on earth. Jesus amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches that are on earth. And then there's going to be a marker for us that even in Revelation 4 says, After this, behold, I looked and a door standing open in heaven, (laughs) right? The camera ankle shifted. It's the same time period, now. Dr. Horton was addressing 
what was happening on earth. And now John is seeing a vision of what's going on at heaven in the same time, not subsequently, not chronologically afterwards, but simultaneously. And so, for instance, another way that we know chronologically that these things don't always happen in sequence is when you say, then I saw or then I heard something. When John says, then I saw or then I heard, doesn't necessarily mean then that's what happened in space and time. He's talking about his next vision, the next thing that he saw or the next thing that he heard. So by way of example, if I told you about my father, right? If I started off by saying, five years ago, I preached at my father's funeral. You know, and we had hundreds of people there. We were in Michigan. It was difficult. It was touching. It was incredible to see all these people. And then I told you about one of my, I said, you know, and I remember my father, you know, taking me uh, to see a train when I was six years old. And I remember my father being at my graduation from college. And I remember going to Alaska with my dad, you know, when we was in high school, right? None of those things are sequential. But all of them are telling you something about my father. And you would recognize the way that I put that story together might even just tell you something. What I remember most recently is his funeral. But then one of the most early memories is going to see a train with him. And then, gosh, I just remember he was at my Biola graduation. And I remember going to Alaska with my family when I was a, a sophomore in high school, right? So all of those things, you wouldn't think he's an idiot. You know, his, his father you know, couldn't have taken him to the railroad because he just told me about his funeral. You know, okay, he's telling me about things out of sequence, but they're all true and they're all important. And they all say something about my father and my relationship to my father. Does that make sense? This really trips people up. It tripped me up. It trips churches up. It trips traditions up. Revelation itself in the very language that it's using shows that it's not strictly chronological. Some things are, but some things aren't. And two of the biggest are to remember when it says something like, then I saw or then I heard, doesn't mean then it happened. It means then I saw it or then I heard it. And they could go on simultaneously. Here's what I saw happening in earth. Here's what was going on in heaven. It could be this. It could be this. But the text will help us. The context will help us as we go through. And then the other marker, this is huge. I think in your notes I have, right, Revelation 1 said, who is, who was, and who is coming. And then Revelation eleven seventeen says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Well, where's the who is coming? Well, this is after the seventh trumpet had now blown. He's already come. Judgment and salvation have already come. And then five chapters later, we read um, who is and who was. This is after the seventh bowl was open. In other words, there's no more is coming because here is the final consummation in judgment in 11 and in 16 and then in 22 again. But in between there, there's also times coming back to something before, showing you what's going on on earth or what's going on in heaven. And then isn't it interesting how the book opens and closes is with him who is and who was and who is coming, and from Jesus Christ who is before his throne, and from the seven spirits, meaning the Holy Spirit. And turn to Revelation 22. How does it close?
Revelation 22, starting in 6, it says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show the servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then jump over to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears these words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting that 1 and 22 have this image of I'm coming and I'm coming soon. And then in between, we just have different scenes. Some of them are at that cataclysmic final coming. Some are during the time now before he comes. Um, Some are a vision of things on earth and some are a vision of things in heaven. And again, it's really masterful the way it's put together. I think of it as, again, you're a movie director. Hey, let's capture this from this angle. Let's capture this from this perspective. Let's put this in this particular sequence in order to tell a story, or let's go back and make sure we're reinforcing something by recapitulating it or bringing it back a couple times over and over. It helps with our memory. It helps us get a bigger picture and vision. And ultimately, it's meant to comfort us that no matter what any of these things, fear not, little flock, the one who has the keys of death and hell and Hades and heaven, the one who is dead is now alive forevermore, and he's ruling and reigning for his people. So it's meant to comfort us. So there'll be more things that we'll look at as we go through, but does anybody have any questions about those? Those time markers or chronology? All right. So then the second thing I wanted to look at is Dr. Godfrey provided a really helpful outline for the book of Revelation that I just handed out on the first day that we were together, but we didn't have the opportunity to go through it. So I just want to mention that he, I think, has the right end of the stick here. And how safe to say, I think Dr. Godfrey's got it right, right? Um, But of all the outlines that I've read for the book, I think this is the one that makes the most sense to me and seems most faithful and done by someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about it and understands history and how books are put together anyway. So it's in seven cycles. Go figure, right? In the book of Revelation. And so the first cycle, which we, uh, we, we looked at in the first three weeks, is the church in its suffering must remain faithful. Right? So that's the clear image that you got from what Dr. Horton was talking about the past two weeks. Warning the churches, comforting the churches, encouraging the churches. He's present there amongst his lampstands. If you take away the gospel witness, if you take away the fruit, you're no longer a true church. You're warning. The church is called in the midst of its suffering to remain faithful. Not on its own. It started off by saying, he is with us. And in each cycle... If we went down in here, there's seven things in each cycle. 
So he heard the seven edicts to the seven churches in cycle one. Cycle two, which we're going to start, which we're starting today. The church's suffering advances the purposes of God in history. And then cycle three, the church's suffering in history is less than the suffering of the wicked in history. The force, the church is preserved by God throughout history. And notice that's at the very center. At the very center of the book of Revelation, at the very center of the seven cycles, three kind of winding up into it and three kind of winding out of it, is the church is preserved by God throughout history. Cycle five, the church is encouraged to faithfulness by the final judgment visited on the wicked. Cycle six, the church is vindicated for its faithfulness in the final judgment. And cycle seven, the church as the bride of Christ inherits the new earth as Babylon the harlot and all the forces of the wicked are judged. So we're we're going to spend the whole semester, or, or, or this whole Sunday school year, going through the book of Revelation. But keep this with you, either in your book or in your Bible or whatever. We can't possibly unpack all of it right now. But we're going to follow that rubric. And it's really helpful, again, to understand the book. And it speaks to this, too, doesn't it? Because it'll go back and revisit some of these things. It's not just all going chronologically in the same order throughout time. It's visiting something, telling a different story about the church's suffering in history, about God's preservation of his people during the midst of their suffering, about God's judgment upon the evil ones. Does that make sense? So it's really helpful. We looked at cycle one already. We're going to start looking at cycle two today. And then the other outline I handed out at the very beginning, which we didn't have a chance to go through, so I want to revisit it here. And maybe this is all we'll really do today and not get too much into four is a summary of Dr. Johnson's book, The Triumph of the Lamb. I said that was one of the most helpful and interesting reads to get a big picture of the book of Revelation. It really talks about some of these ideas in it, the idea of different camera angles, the idea of different language and how it's being used to give indicators of how and when and where we are. Um, This is explained even more who is and who was and who is coming. But here are seven principles (laughs) Um, to follow as you look at the book of Revelation, which will be really helpful. First, Revelation is given to reveal. It makes its central message so clear that even those who hear it can take it to heart and receive the blessings it promises. So it's meant to reveal. It starts off, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So, so many times it's been used to try to confuse or people get confused by it. And it's trying to reveal the central image of who Christ is. To his people, the book of Revelation should be one of the most comforting books in Scripture. To his enemies, it should be one of the most terrifying books in all of Scripture. But not to his people, not to his church, not to his flock. It should be very comforting. And again, as Dr. Horton pointed out, to all who hear it. So the first century church doesn't have to wait until the invention of the Apache helicopter to understand what the locusts are. (laughs) They understood what locusts are. It's not talking about some 21st century American industrial complex invention, right? Too bad, you know, 2,000 years of church couldn't understand this book. Jesus was hiding it from them. It's supposed to make sense to them. They get it. The idea of the risen and ascended Savior in the midst 
of the trials, in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the storm. The second one, he says, Revelation is a book to be seen. That's interesting. A book about symbols and motion. Because the appearance of individuals and institutions in everyday experience often mask their true identity, Revelation is given in visions full of symbols that paradoxically picture the true identity of the church, its enemies, and its champion. So it's using symbolic images to show things, to give a really powerful and graphic description, to even capture your imagination, to show something broad, to really inspire awe in terms of who God is and the reality of the sin world in which we live and the fact that he's powerful over all of it, even now. And so he uses these great images. Uh, Dr. Horton got into some of them last week. And we do this all the time, right? If I said that I had a friend whose you know, legs were as strong as tree trunks and his eyes were like marbles and his hair was you know, just like a, a bush. Like if, if you tried to draw him, you'd be like, what? I'd say, no, it's, it's obviously Brett Watson, right? So, and, and you, <laughs> so you all know what it's like. Like if I was describing somebody or something, I'm using images. Well, by the legs, we're talking about someone who's got strong legs. By the eyes, we're talking about someone with clear eyes. You know, just beautiful eyes. And then flowing hair, obviously not Brett Watson in this case, right? Um, but you know, what it, you know what it is when someone describes that? It's doing this as well. The third one, Revelation makes sense only in light of the Old Testament. Not only the visions of such prophets as Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, but also historical events such as creation, the fall, the exodus, provide symbolic vocabulary for John's revelation. In other words, I would say the best way to understand the book of Revelation is to have next to you is the Old Testament, not your newspaper or not to have on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. (laughs) What you need to understand (laughs) is provided for us. It's conjuring up these images. The best way to understand Revelation is to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. So for instance, chapter 5, John, one one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, John sees an image in heaven And there's a scroll that must be opened. But for whatever reason, he realizes that nobody can open it. And there's just weeping. And then all of a sudden, one comes in like a lamb that was slain and is worthy to open the scroll. That's not talking about the second coming. That's talking about the ascension. John's looking back on the ascension of Jesus Christ, where one who was slain... (laughs) is now resurrected, and he's worthy. And he's the one who is worthy to open that. And there's praise in heaven and glory when Jesus arrives. Where is he now, beloved? Ruling and reigning. When we said today in communion, we lift our hearts to the Lord, where he's ruling and reigning for you on your behalf. His blood poured out for you. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now so that you won't fall away and so that you will persevere, and so that we will all be together in the end. He's busy doing his priestly and kingly work. Number four, numbers count in Revelation. 
Since numbers are used symbolically in Revelation, we must discern the meaning they convey rather than trying to pull them as numbers directly into our own experience measured by calendars and odometers. (laughs) And sometimes people say of people who interpret Revelation the way that we do, that we're just making things up, that we're either allegorical or that we're just figurative and that we don't care about what's literally being said. And I submit to you, the very first number that's mentioned in Revelation is symbolic. It says, the seven spirits who are before his throne. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. When it says the seven spirits who are before his throne, it's referring to the one Holy Spirit and all of his holiness and all of his power and all of his seeing and all of his ability and his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence. And so if the very first number is symbolic, it might tip us off that other numbers in the book are also symbolic. And I submit to you, it's, if you take, if you're using a literary device the way that it's meant to be used, that's the literal interpretation. So if someone's using a simile and you take it as a simile, or someone's using a metaphor and you take it as a metaphor, someone's using it as a symbol and you take it as a symbol, that is the literary way to read it. And it's true. You're taking the text at face value and you're using the different literary devices, literary genres that it were written in and that we understand to understand the text. Nobody who holds to a literalistic interpretation of Revelation thinks there are seven spirits. And then, so they'll take the first number as symbolic and then say, well, all the rest of them need to be literal. It has to be seven years. It has to be a thousand-year tribulation. It has to be this. Whoa, 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 whoa. We just talked about the very first one was symbolic and might carry a deeper and richer meaning or a different meaning. Maybe these other ones do too. Let's hit a pause button and make sure we understand it in context and understand it in terms of the actual language that's being used, the genre that's being used, and the form of speech that's being used. A simile, right? If I say Michelle is like a gazelle when she runs. I'm not saying Michelle's a gazelle. She's graceful. She's beautiful. She's powerful. You get that. Same thing here. When it says the one sitting on the throne is like something or as something or has the appearance of something. Does that make sense? That's something else that throws, throws people off. The fifth one, Revelation is for a church under attack. Its purpose is to awaken us to the dimensions of the battle and the strategies of the enemy so that we will respond to the attacks with faithful perseverance and purity overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it great that God tells us what our enemy's doing? (laughs) He's trying to deceive you. He's trying to trick you. He parades as an angel of light. He's going to try to distort your doctrine. He's going to try to distort your worship. He's going to try to weaken you. Like Satan in the garden, he's going to try to get you to doubt God's goodness. He's going to try to get you to doubt God's faithfulness. He's going to try to get you to doubt God's presence. He's going to use everything that is at his disposal. But even what's at his disposal is still under the authority and reign of God. Satan can go so far and no further. Evil can go so far and no further. 
Because who has ultimate power and authority on heaven and on earth? That's meant to be comforting. The sixth revelation concerns what must soon take place. We must seek an understanding that touches the experience of brothers and sisters in the seven first century congregations scattered in cities in Western Asia Minor. Revelation is not about events and hostile forces remote from their struggle. Again, it has to make sense to the first century, the fifth century, the 10th century, the 11th century, the 15th century, the 17th century, the 21st century, and then however long the Lord tarries. It has to make sense. And seventh, the victory belongs to God and his Christ. Revelation is pervaded with worship songs and scenes because its pervasive theme, despite its gruesome portrait of evil powers, is the triumph of God through the Lamb. We read this book to hear the king's call to courage and to fall down in adoring worship before him. And so those, that's all we really have time for today, but those are the things I wanted to go through the first week. Just Dr. Godfrey's outline showing that there's really kind of a structure to this. Seven different cycles, all that have seven parts. And then the center one was about God preserving his people. And then these helpful summaries from Dr. Johnson about it's given to reveal, it's given in images. The Old Testament, more so than your newspaper, will be helpful to you. Numbers are significant. It's for a church under attack. It's things that must soon take place, not some remote, distant future unattached to the church in any century and ultimately the vision is of Christ victorious, ruling and reigning for and on behalf of his people with a promise to come and he says I'm coming soon, right? We recognize we don't mark time the same way God does because it doesn't seem soon to us but once his last sheep is in his fold, he'll come in the twinkling of an eye and you will see it. And everybody will see it. And there will be awe. You know, Dr. Johnson in his book starts off talking about Revelation 4, which is what we'll look at next time we're together. Um, I don't want to, if you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, this is going to be a spoiler alert. <laughs> but it's been out 50 years. <laughs> I think we're all right. In The Wizard of Oz, he's talking about, you know, Toto goes and like pulls back the curtain. After all this long journey and everything that they've gone through, looking for courage, looking for a heart, looking for bravery, you know, there's houses falling on people, witches, evil, burning up, being chased, and all this. And then they get there, and Toto pulls back the curtain, and there's just a guy standing there moving levers. And you're just like so disappointed. Like, hey. And he says, you had the power to go back all along. In other words, like you could save yourself. You know, it was really within you all along. You just needed to learn to be brave. You needed to learn to have a heart. You needed to learn to think differently. But you had to do all these things. I'm not even really necessaries, just trickery. Gimmicks. Flash pots. You know, there's, he, Dennis Johnson was saying there's a real loss of awe in our society today. Because we know so many things through the Hubble telescope and through microscopes and through film. We can do things that make things look incredible that aren't even really happening. But the image that you see in Revelation 
is not of a man behind the curtain who's just kind of manipulating things, trying to trick you or fool you. It's of the God who created the universe out of nothing with speech and said, let there be, and there was. The God who orchestrated the exodus of his people and all the 10 plagues. The God who orchestrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's this real sense of awe so much that when you see images of heaven, almost always people can't speak. When Isaiah caught a glimpse of the throne and he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. John falls down. John weeps. When you see behind the curtain at Oz, you're like, are you kidding me? It's just some little dude playing with mechanisms, tricking us, manipulating us, playing with us. But when you get a glimpse of the God of heaven, this is what you hear. We'll close by reading the passage. I'll read Revelation 4 and 5 to close us. One is the image of the Father. One is the image of the Son. That Dr. Horton closed his text last week. It said, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's saying, On my throne and my Father's throne, and then the very next scene, chapter 4, my father's throne, chapter 5, my throne. Get it? This is what's happening on earth. Now who's with us? After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their head, which were images from the edicts to the churches. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders to me 
said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things, by the way. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's powerful. That's meant to comfort us. It's not getting up here behind the curtain and finding some little guy manipulating levers. This is the creator of the universe and his son who created everything and redeemed his people, ruling and reigning in perfect holiness and perfect power and perfect peace and perfect purity and perfect love and perfect justice forever and ever. Peace be with you, he says. Fear not, little flock. I've got this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for revealing to us the Christ that has come and the things that must soon take place and what is taking place and the reality that he's coming again soon. Father, we believe but help our unbelief. Please strengthen us. And with the words and with the visions of uh, this book and through your Holy Spirit, would you please comfort us and would you please strengthen our faith that we are resting and trusting in Christ alone, sent by the Father to save and to seal us and that we are sealed now even with the Holy Spirit who's been given to us and that nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from your love. May we live and love and serve in light of that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.